you can be seated if you're not already. So as we have um, been kind of divvying up the teaching for Wednesday nights, um, Linda's done some, Karen's done some, Tony's done some, Keith Gallo's going to bring it in a couple of weeks, and um, just a couple of different, Jeremiah was here last week, uh, Scott Wilson's going to do one in, in a little while, and um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel, First and Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and I drew the short straw. <laughs> no, I'm I'm taking one for the team. I feel as if I'm in a bubble. Uh, Milton, I feel, I feel like, uh, I feel like I'm, I sound like I'm in a, a fishbowl. Um, so it's, it's, it's a super exciting book and I have played around with about 32 different introductions and everything I thought of to say as an opening illustration or an opening comment can be taken the wrong way. And so uh, we're just going to dive in, and, the, and I'm going to go ask the table hosts if you have the questions. I just want to go ahead and start with question number one, and then we're going to dive in. So go with question number one on your mark, get set, go. was 15 years old. I was a sophomore in high school, and I was not supposed to be able to date until I was 16. Uh, that was the rule in our house, but uh, it looked like we were going to be moving at the end of the school year, and I used that to convince my dad to let me ask Elizabeth Thomas out to the 
to the dance. And um, it cost me months of raking leaves and all that kind of stuff. But I remember um, in that, and it was a, it was, it was a wonderful night. Um, Elizabeth ended up dancing with David Glisson the entire night. <laughs> but that was okay because I ended up dancing with Amy Poppel for the rest of the night. So um, it, was, it was really awkward, but it was a lot of fun. Um, Julie's and I's first date, um, it was, um, I can't remember, we went to this awful restaurant. I mean, the food was awful, the service was awful, but we didn't realize it until we were done. Julie and I had been friends for two or three years to that point, and we had just kind of gotten to uh, this, okay, I think we're supposed to be dating each other, and we're kind of both excited about it, and it was just awkward and nerve-wracking and fun and wonderful all at the same time, but I can just remember it was the worst meal I think we've ever shared in our entire relationship, but um, some of you, I think I heard at a couple of different tables, I can't remember what I had for lunch today. How am I supposed to remember my first date. Um, but uh, So tonight we're going to be looking at the last of the wisdom literature, which is the Song of Solomon, or some uh, Bibles will call it Song of Songs. Like the books before it, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon seeks to explain God's wisdom in, in a key area of our life, or key areas of our life. In this case, it's about courtship, love, sex, marriage, the love between a husband and wife, the emotional and physical pursuit of that love and the relationships both emotionally uh, and physically and even spiritually between those two individuals. For many, uh, there is often a weirdness, not a difficulty necessarily, but a weirdness uh, that this book has been included in Scripture. Um, there's often, okay, why, why are we talking about this? And, and it's because of the sexual and sensual nature of, of, of the content. And, and make no mistake about it, this is an incredibly sensual book. Um, but the, the truth is, while that throws people, why, why wouldn't God discuss the topic? He created it. He put it into play for us as his creations. And if he discusses them, why, why shouldn't we? Uh, and, and when I say that, I do mean in, 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 in appropriate ways and in appropriate settings. Um, if the Lord were to lead us as a church to go to do a sermon series through the book of Song of Solomon, I wouldn't just throw that on us that Sunday morning. We would do some some uh, disclaimers or some promotion or some some. We'd be waving a lot of banners and saying, "Hey!" And we'd be sending all the kids out. I know we'd be sending my kids out, you know, uh, but we would. But we still have the right to talk about it because it's something God gifted to us. Um, he created sex to be an incredible experience as well as an example and a reflection of intimacy. Um, and let me pause here and, and say very clearly that not all of us are married. Not all of us are called to be married. Marriage is not mandated in Scripture. But for those of us who are, marriage is intended, maybe I should emphasize marriage is intended ultimately to be a picture, to be a testimony, to be an example to the world of the believer's relationship with the Savior of the Christ followers' relationship with the Savior, of the church's relationship with the Savior. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 says, Let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has prepared herself. That's us. That's, that, that's us. We're the bride. And it's that way throughout Scripture. He gives us this picture, this marriage picture. My relationship with Julie is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But the purpose of my relationship with Julie is, number one, I am supposed to build her up in Christ's likeness. She is supposed to build me up in Christ's likeness. But together, our relationship is supposed to be a reflection of the Father's love for His church. I am supposed to love Julie like Christ loves the church. Julie is supposed to follow my leadership in her life as, as I would follow the leadership of Christ. I've got to be the example for her to follow it. But everything about our relationship from what you see to what you don't 
is supposed to be a reflection and a testimony of God's grace and God's goodness in our lives to his church. Now, before we dive into the Song of Solomon, let's take a few minutes. I want to take a few minutes. I want you to look at question number two together. Talk about question number two together. On your mark, get set, and go. another minute. All right, let me ask, is anybody willing to share their example? Anybody willing to share their example of somebody in your life that you, that you would say reflected a healthy, godly marriage to you? Anybody? Okay, Why? Okay. 
Somebody else, an example of a godly marriage in, that you've you've had the privilege to observe or or know, Bob. Anybody else? Yeah. Um, my grandparents. Okay. Anybody else? The Juliks. Why? Hmm. Yeah. I have several. Uh, I think in the opportunities that Julie and I have had to to be at different places. Um, Every church has those patriarchs and matriarchs, but but also there's there's often those couples. And, and Julie and I have had those that were grandfatherly, grandmotherly. But Julie and I have also had friends and peers that were examples to us uh, in in different respects. And there's always those different character qualities that that go. Uh, the fact that God included this book in the Bible demonstrates the incredible value He places on intimate relationships on. Marriage and, and on doing things the right way, specifically with marriage, it's the Bible's very clear: one man, one woman, united in marriage, spending their lives working together to reflect His image to the world. That said, sin, as it often does, sneaks into the picture, and like it does with everything else on this side of life, it works to distort um, God's design. Sin works to distort God's intentions for marriage and sexuality. And it makes them, and there's a, there's a plethora of, of adjectives that could be used here, but I think when sin enters the marriage and the sexual conversation, the sex conversation, I think it ultimately boils down to when it becomes self-serving. That's, that's, that's the, the kind of the root of when it, when it all falls apart. And it's only through a right relationship with God that people can love each other the way that they were, were intended and created to before sin entered the picture. I used, uh, turn to John chapter 14. I used this passage this morning with our senior adults, uh, and I want to kind of walk through it. But if you'll turn to John chapter 14, uh, I've put on your, your questions and stuff, I've put read and react. And by that, what I mean is, 
that don't, don't feel like you've got to have the right answer. I just literally want you to read and react to, to what you read, but I want to kind of give an example of that. Read John chapter 14 with me as soon as I can find it. John chapter 14, verses 9 through 17. Oh, that's not right. Hold on. Excuse me. John chapter 15, verses 9 through uh, 17. My apologies. Typo. As the Father has loved me, John chapter 15, starting with verse 9, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Let me stop right there. As the Father has loved me, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's not talking about anything sexual. He's just talking about love here. As the, as, as the Father, and you can almost reverse the statement. I have loved you in the same way the Father has loved me. I, Jesus, have demonstrated love to you because I'm, I'm just a conduit of the Father right here. If you keep my commands, you remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. When is your joy complete? When your joy is found in him. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. How have I loved you? I've loved you as the Father has loved me. You're supposed to love each other in the same way that the Father has loved you. No one has greater love than this. What does yours say? To lay down his life for his friends. And one of the points I was making this morning with our senior adults is that's exactly what Jesus is getting ready to do. Jesus is getting ready to give the ultimate demonstration of love by sacrificing his own life. He is getting ready to demonstrate the greatest, the greatest example of love by giving, laying down his life for his friends. And then he says, you're my friends if you do what I command you. I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. The, the, the master wouldn't, wouldn't sit down with his servants and go, okay, y'all, this is what I'm thinking about. What do, what do y'all think? Let's everybody weigh in. Now, a servant, a master is going to go to a servant and say, this is the plan. I'm telling you today, this is what I want done. And what Jesus is saying is that's not where we are anymore. I'm going, I'm going to let you know that this is what's happening. I no longer call you servants. I'm no longer calling you slaves. You're my friends. So I'm giving you a little bit of insight to what's going on. I'm telling you everything I know because you're getting ready to carry on the gospel. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I, I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit. When you hear that, you need to think of two things. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And you need to think of fruit in the sense of producing other believers, producing other disciples, being a disciple maker. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. And one of the things I wanted to make sure that they understood this morning, this is not like a, a the Father, just because I go in Jesus' name doesn't mean that that's the magic, that's the magic uh, potion. You know, it's not like Jonathan needs a new car, in Jesus' name, boom. Jonathan wants to live beachside, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, you know Jonathan needs Stevens to get a full ride scholarship to the college of her choice. You know, in Jesus' name, and I get it, that's not the way it works. We talked Sunday about what, what is a name. When you, when, you, it's, it's, when you talk about a name, you're talking about somebody's character. You're talking about somebody's honor. You're talking about somebody's person. You're talking about somebody's identity. And when we pray in Jesus' name, we're saying, I want to identify with your character. I want my wants to be what your wants are. I want what my desires are to be what your desires are. I'm praying this, hoping, seeking, desiring that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find myself in your will. And then he says this, this is what I command you. Love one another. How are we to love one another? As he loved us. How did he love us? He loved us as the Father loved him. Perfectly and completely. Ultimately, that is the definition of love, which brings us to the Song of Solomon. As we understand love, we can take a quick journey through the Song of Solomon. We're not going to cover uh, the entire book. That's not what Wednesday nights are for. 
Wednesday nights are for an overview. And so Tommy Nelson is the senior pastor of Denton Bible Church in Denton, Texas, which is north, Fort, is it north, Scott, north of North Fort Worth, Dallas area. Um, and he is kind of known as the, the um, he's kind of known twofold. He does the conference called the Song of Solomon Conference. So forever he was the sex pastor. And then uh, he actually battled depression and then overcame that. So he was known as the depression pastor. And then he made this joke one time at one of his conferences that he was hopefully inevitably going to become the depressive sex pastor. And you're like, wow, I'm not sure if that's funny or not. And then he told us to laugh, and so we did, awkwardly and uncomfortably. If you ever want to go into a deeper study of the Song of Solomon, I would encourage you to get Tommy Nelson's resources. I highly recommend the resources. I highly recommend the conference. So let's get started. As you read through the book, you're going to notice if you're taking notes, if you have some paper or something to write on, is your, is your, um, well, I didn't, I'm not as cool as Karen, so I don't have, you know, handouts for you. Um, but you're going to notice four, four characters or four sets of characters. You're going to have uh, the woman uh, who is the bride. Uh, you're going to have the young women. Those are her friends. Uh, they, are, they are there to serve as transitions and to help with key questions. Uh, they're going to they're gonna help move the conversation along and move it in directions that help teach us and guide us. Keep in mind, while this is sort of a narrative, Solomon is telling a story, it is still poetry. There are metaphors, illustrations, parallels, similes, all of that. They're in here. Uh, and so it is, it is poetry. Uh, so it can be a little challenging to kind of navigate, but the friends are there to kind of help transition the conversation and get it going in different directions. Then you're going to have the man, uh, and most scholars do believe that Solomon is the, is the bridegroom. Solomon is the one who is playing the part of the bridegroom. This is more than likely his first bride. Uh, if you remember, Solomon had a few. Um, he kind of went a little bit to the wayside. And then there's going to be a narrator. And the narrator is driving the story. The narrator is also serving as a transition. And then the, 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 the book is divided into um, seven sections to some degree. Uh, and, and I would give you these seven words as sort of the divisions of the book. Attraction, dating, courtship, intimacy, conflict, romance, and commitment. I know, I'm going, to do, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it again. I just need to go through it once. So it starts off with this, this idea of attraction, that we're attracted to one another. And then it moves into a conversation about their, their kind of dating. Uh, and, and we'll talk about the difference between dating and courtship in just a moment. Um, but it, moves, it goes from attraction to, to a recognition of one another, and then it moves from dating into a courtship. So from attraction to dating to courtship, and then, it, 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 and then a level of intimacy enters, enters the story. And that moves us into to a, a bit of conflict, and tension might even be a better word than, than conflict, but every good story has tension. And most relationships have tension. I don't know if you've never, has anybody in this room never had an argument with their spouse? Okay, just make sure. Because if you haven't, I was going to try to find a way to start one. No, I'm just kidding. It moves from conflict to romance. And then ultimately, it's, it moves us into commitment. And while we don't have the time to go through the entire book, we're, we're going to take a handful of verses uh, here and there that I think will help us uh, understand uh, how to, just how to read uh, the, the poetic wisdom. So if you'll turn to Song of Solomon chapter 1, Song of Solomon chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. I'm going to kind of try to help us just kind of look at how to read. Song of Solomon chapter 1 says this, Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. This is the woman speaking. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Okay, there you go. For your caresses are more delightful. I'm going to turn beet red during this entire lesson, just letting you know up front. Oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your caresses are more delightful than wine. 
The fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. No wonder young women adore you. Take me with you. Let's hurry. Oh, that the king would bring me to his chambers. That's one of the reasons we believe Solomon has inserted himself as the man, as the bridegroom here. Uh, let me, the king would bring me to his chambers. And then the young women. We will rejoice. We'll be glad in you. We will celebrate your caresses more than wine. The woman, it is only right that they adore you. They, other women in the, in the region. Daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, for the sun has gazed on me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. I have not taken care of my own vineyard. Tell me, who, you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? Where do you let them rest at noon? Why should I be like the one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? Verse 8, the man has started to talk. If you do not know, most beautiful women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. My love of my life, you are like a horse. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry, your neck with its necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you accented with silver. Now, you, you may or may not realize it, but that was super sensual. Like, they are flirting big time with one another here. They are very attracted to one another. And this is what makes this book a little bit of a challenge to understand. You really have to study this book to understand what is happening here. So let's back up a little bit real quick. Um, oh, that he would kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Verse 3, the fragrance of your perfume is intoxicating. Your name is perfume poured out. What do we know that, that somebody's name is? Uh, what do we know that your name is? We just talked about it a moment ago. It, it's, your, it's who you are. It's your character. It is, it is the person of you. And what she is saying is we're, we're kind of, we're not even talking about the physicality of this. She is looking at him. She is looking at his character. She is looking at his person. And she's saying who you are grabs my attention. Who you are. I am intoxicated just by being around you. If Julie were here, that's how she would describe me. And I'm glad that she's not here to contradict my sins. Then she, look, go down a little bit. Verse 5, daughters of Jerusalem, I am dark. Your, your translation may say, I am black. I am dark like the tents of Kedar, yet lovely like the curtains of Solomon. Any thoughts as to why she would be dark? Say it again. She's been outside. She's been outside in the sun. If she's outside in the sun, more than likely, what is she doing? She's working. This woman has an incredible work ethic. Keep in mind, these first eight, nine, ten verses are all about attraction and what could possibly be drawing them to one another. It says this, it says that she's describing herself, she says, do not stare at me because I am dark. The sun has gazed on me. I have been working. Why have I been working? Because my mother's sons, my brother's were angry with me. They made me take care of the vineyards. In other words, my mother's sons, my brothers gave me work assignments and I went out and I did it. And in this, in that little line, what we need to read and interpret is that this young lady respects the authorities that are over her. Keep in mind the culture. This is a very uh, patriarchal culture. The, the men are kind of calling the shots here, but, but she is saying, I respected my brothers. They are the authorities over me. And I go out and I work hard, even to the detriment of how I feel I look myself. But we have this character conversation that is going on. Oh, it's so, it's so good. Tell me, you, who, you whom I love, where do you pasture your sheep? 
Where, where do you serve? Where do you work? What are, what are you doing? She is, she is, and, and where do you pasture your flock? In other words, where, where are you going to, where are you going to, where are you going to plant roots? Where are you, you, I love you. Where are you going to settle down? All right, let's, let's go ahead and have this conversation. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flock of your companions? In other words, he's got flocks. He's got other women who are pining after him. And she does, she's, not gonna, she's not gonna play that game. Why should she be one that veils herself? Does anybody know who would have veiled themselves? Prostitutes. She's not gonna come after, after him like some floozy. She has too much character. She has too much integrity. She knows what she's worth, and he's obviously recognizing it as well, because he is drawn to her, and she is drawn to him as well. Because he looks at her in verse 8 and says, if you do not know, and then look at what he says. He's pretty direct, probably because he's not as, as eloquent or as poetic as she is. Tell me, uh, excuse me, if you do not know, most beautiful of women... Well, let's just get straight to the point. Hey, lady, you fine. <laughs> you know. Follow the tracks of the flocks and pasture your young goats near the shepherd's tents. And then he says this, I compare you, my darling, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Here's what he's saying. Yes, he is saying, I compare you to a horse. But what he, is, what he is comparing her to is not just a horse in a barn on a farm. What he is comparing her to is going to be one of the most majestic, well-kept, well-adorned animals in all of the kingdom. This, this mare is going to be beautiful. This mare is going to be healthy. This mare is going to be strong physically and mentally. This mare is going to have been raised and bred to, to, to fight battles and to stand, uh, to stand under royalty. And what he is saying is, girl, you've got strength. You've got character. You are like a mare in Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are beautiful with jewelry. Her cheeks aren't wearing any jewelry. What he's saying is you have color to your face. There is something, there is something, there's a resonance around you that draws me. Your neck with this necklace. We will make gold jewelry for you. Why is gold, why is, why is gold a compliment? Because it is the most valuable element or jewel you could This is the most worth. I'm going to give you that which is most valuable. I'm going to place my value on you. I'm the king. I'm Solomon. And I'm going to adorn you with what I think you're worth. And that gold is going to be accented with silver. Question number three and question number four. Take some time to ask and answer those at your tables. On your mark, get set, go.
about another minute. often refer to us as the Christian version of the television show Friends. There were there were five of us, uh, three girls and uh, Todd and I. It was Julie, her best friend Lynn, their friend Linda, and then Todd and I. And and we just we just kind of did everything together. And if we if we were dating somebody, they kind of had to be filtered through the group and and all that. And I hope I tell this story appropriately. If I don't, Karen will let me know. Um, and, and, and I, wish, I do wish Julie were here because she would fill in some of the blanks. But we were, uh, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, Wade Morris, who just, just passed away due to complications from COVID. But we had had a Disciple Now weekend. And Julie and I, we were, we were in this group of five, and, and Julie and I were just very close friends and really never, never gave it much of a thought. And uh, we are sitting at Papacito's um, Mexican restaurant, one of my favorites, and uh, all the Disciple Now leaders are at one table, so there's like 25 of us at this table, and Wade is right here. I don't know why I'm at the head of the table, but Julie's right there, and it's just the rest of the leaders, and we all get our drinks, and we're all snacking on chips, and we're waiting on our meals, and, and Wade stands up and says, hey, hey, everybody, is it just me? Or is the sexual tension right here killing everybody? <laughs> and, and what? It was a very Wade Morris thing to do. And uh, what's funny is we, we kind of played it off not real well, but I remember going home and thinking, is it? <laughs> And um, didn't give it much thought. And, and we, had the, we had a Sunday night service at that church that was kind of supposed to be edgier and, and all of this kind of stuff. And, um, and uh, we, it was you know, darker, had kind of an edgy feel to it and all that. And so uh, I was leading the music and kind of going back and forth. And I remember I was walking up to my office, and, and this is the part that I hope I tell appropriately. I was walking up to my office, and I saw... <laughs> I saw this young lady walking into my office, and I remember thinking to myself, I don't know who that is, but she is looking for me. <laughs> yes. And, it, and that girl turned around, and it was Julie. And she goes, hey, I was just looking for you. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I just had a thought. And it was you. And that was kind of the moment of, and, and, I, and while I was attracted to her physically, there was also for us, there was that element that we, we were so good friends that God used that. And I had prayed for years that I would marry my best friend. That's what I had asked the Lord for. There are lots of different things that we can be attracted to and things. That, and I think our definition of attractive changes uh, over the course of time as we mature, but especially as we mature spiritually. Question number four was, why is mutual respect such a vital key to attraction? I'm not necessarily going to answer. You may have gotten there. You may not have. But I, what I want you to understand as you read through the Song of Solomon, you will notice specifically with the man and the woman, this ongoing mutual admiration. One of them is not further along than the other. They're approaching it from different perspectives, but there is a mutual respect and a mutual admiration and a mutual, they are on the same page. They, they may not get, be there all the time, but they get there as they're responding to, to one another. It's, it's a neat back and forth. Um, I do want you to take, uh, so we go from attraction, and it goes from attraction into dating, and then dating moves into courtship. What would you say is the difference between dating and courtship? 
Say it again. When you decide that relationship has possibilities, was somebody going to go for it over here? Dating with a purpose. Dating is really nothing more, a date is really nothing more than an event between two people for the purpose of observation and education. Or if you're, you know, plenty of the girls that I dated in college, it's a free meal. <laughs> you know, but it's really, a date is for the purpose of just, okay, do, do I like being around this person? You know, kind of observing their habits. Do they chew with their mouth open? I mean, are, you know, that, you know, things like, are they, you know, are they mouth breathers? You know, things like that. Courtship, courtship has an intended outcome. It's, it's when you're in this pursuing what could possibly come out of it. Specifically, does it have the long-range viability for marriage? And that, that's where it goes. We're, we're into about chapter 2, chapter 3 that we move from. They, they've kind of gotten to know one another. Now they're moving into this courtship because they know it's going somewhere. And then around chapter 4, it moves into intimacy. And we go from there. The book, the book is a progression. They're attracted to one another. They walk into the introductory phase of dating. And then they enter into a courtship, and that courtship time includes, and this is what I love about God's Word, you know, we don't, we don't have a God's Word that eliminates Bathsheba from David's story. We don't have a God's Word that, that, that doesn't tell us when Peter opened his mouth to exchange feet. You know, God includes all of that in his word so that we see our failures and our shortcomings. And what we have here is in the courtship time, you'll see it when you enter into chapters three through five, there is a tension that happens because they are, they're not just attracted to each other. They think they're cool and they're friends. They are sexually attracted to one another. They, they want to be with one another physically, but they do hold off. And we'll look at that in just a moment, but it's this progression as one would expect they are visual physical beings so they they have to they have to deal with the desires and the temptations and what happens is they move from courtship to an engagement an engagement to marriage and in this marriage they conv- they commit their lives to one another and it kind of comes around full circle because towards the end they they are reminded and they remind one another why they were attracted to one another in the first place there are some, those are some of the best times that I have with Julie is when um, we, may, we may have seasons, especially right now, because we're going in several different directions. If you've got children, you know what I'm saying, but we're, I'm going here, she's going there. And it may be a week or a week and a half before she and I really connect. But there will be those moments in time that, that we have where my best friend shows up and her best friend shows up, and we just kind of look across the table and I go, that's who I married. Or Julie will say something, usually it's kind of smart-alecky, and I'll be like, that's who I married. I love her. The uniqueness of this book is found in its poetry. There are metaphors and parallels throughout, but everything has a deeper meaning than what just a first read might offer. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. It says, Young women of Jerusalem... She's speaking with her friends. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and wild does of the field. We're not really talking about gazelles and wild does. We're talking about the men and the women who are in our sphere of influence. We're talking about the people who influence us. We're talking about the people that are all around. By the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. You know what that means? It means we feel all the temptations, we feel all the pressures, we feel all the desires that go with this, this love and this attraction that we feel, but do not push us until the appropriate time. We are going to abstain. We are going to wait. We are going to save our love until it is right, 
until it is within the confines of a marriage relationship, until it is ordained by God and established by what is right. Even though Solomon and his bride are passionately in love, they are choosing to restrain themselves. They are choosing to uh, withhold the, the ultimate physical expression of that love until marriage. And that's what she's saying here. Uh, look at another one. Look at chapter 5. Look at verses 13 and 14. Again, I'm just trying to give us an idea of the poetry that's involved here. I hope this is somewhat beneficial. His cheeks are like beds of spice, mounds of perfume. His lips are lilies dripping with flowing myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with beryl. His body is an ivory panel covered with lapis lazuli. Your, 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 your translation for his body might say his stomach. There's another place where it talks about her navel. And I'm sitting there going, a belly button made it into scripture. That's amazing. You may not see it in the first read, but any time in the Song of Solomon that the, the author talks about the stomach or the navel, he's talking about emotions. Where do you feel emotions? In your gut. And what she is talking about or what he is talking about is his body, his gut is an ivory panel. What is ivory? Ivory is pure. His emotions are pure towards me. That's just one of those examples. Let me give you one more just for, just for kicks and giggles. Chapter 7, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. How beautiful are your sandaled feet. The curves of your thighs are like jewelry, the handiwork of a master. There it is. Your navel is a rounded bowl. It never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a mound of wheat surrounded by lilies. I'm going to go home tonight, and I'm going to look at Julie, and I'm going to say, Julie, your belly is a mound of wheat. She is going to smack me in my face. I will. And you look like a horse, my wife. The curves of your hips are like jewels, the work of the hands of an artist. He's desiring her. Wine and grain are blessings, that blessings would be connected with her emotions. He, he's, he's looking at her and he's saying, there's not a part of you that, that doesn't arouse me. There's not a part of you that I'm not attracted to. There's not a part of you that I don't consider a blessing to my life. In that culture, the, as I just mentioned, the belly is the seat of the emotion. And he is calling her the blessing of God. When he talks about the curves of her hips, he is, he is acknowledging how she, is, how she has been created. The overall emphasis of the book is this incomparable value of navigating love and sex and marriage. God's way versus man's way. And so when you see these, when, when you dive in a little bit deeper and you kind of understand, there's another passage that talks about um, how they're going to share raisin cakes. And at first you're like, raisin cakes. Mm. But there... Raisin cakes were, was this, it was, it was a, a, what's the right word? Aphrodisiac? I mean, it was going to, it was going to get them going. And he's talking about just this, their relationship was, was a, was a raisin cake to, to, to them. Man, just being around you gets me ready. Just being around you turns me on. Being around you makes me better. Being around you makes me want to be a better person. And the thing about this book is the world, the world, it's, it's even hard to say things like that in a church setting because even my mind goes to what television shows have done and what movies have done. But the reality of it, this book is giving us this demonstration of a pure love and sexual relationship in the confines of God's full blessing. 
so that the world can understand there is something incredible about this relationship between a man and a woman. Why is it incredible? Because ultimately it reflects the Father's love, the Savior's love for his bride, the church. One of the reasons that I will stand as the pastor here and I will take a stand on the sanctity of marriage is not for this reason or for that, not necessarily for this reason or for that reason. Don't get me wrong. Everybody is welcome to walk into this building and worship with us. I will hug, I will handshake, I will welcome any sinner, any day, any time but I will stand on the sanctity of marriage, not just for this reason and for that reason, but because ultimately, ultimately, the marriage picture is supposed to be a reflection of the eternal bride and the eternal bridegroom. And anything that distorts that is not just going after marriage, but is going after people's understanding of the Father's love for his creation. And that is ultimately what we are battling in that. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. And I'll close with this and give us a chance to pray together. And if somebody at your table would just read verses 7 through 11, and then if you would just pray as a table, however you feel led, you might want to share some prayer requests. You might want to thank God for something particular. You might want to pray for the Gulf Coast, pray for Afghanistan. What, you just pray as you feel led, and then I'll close this out. But if someone would read 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, and then you pray together as you feel led.
Father, as we wind down our time this evening, first, Father, I, I apologize. I, I talked too much and haven't given as much of this evening to prayer as I desired. But I know that we can speak to you, and I'm grateful that we can we can talk with you on our way home. First thing when we wake up tomorrow, over lunch tomorrow, you are you are always accessible to us because of your Holy Spirit, because of the blood of Jesus. And Father, I just want to come now and thank you for your word. Thank you for including a book like the Song of Solomon that's a little awkward at first, but once we dive in, we see such a reflection of your love for us, your, your desire for the best for us. And Father, when we are not seeing necessarily the best all around us, we are seeing hurt and heartache and confusion and chaos and, and questions. We seem to have more questions than we have answers sometimes, but in the midst of all that, we can look to you, God, and we can see your glory and we can see your holiness and we can know that you are good. Lord, I want to lift up the things that are happening overseas and ask that you continue to, to protect and preserve your church, that you'd give strength and courage and boldness to believers that are in dangerous places. And Father, as, as, I, as, I, as diligently as I pray for that, Lord, I want to lift up our, our homeschool group, the backstage theater group that's been rehearsing and working on their events and, and, and striving to provide an opportunity to serve this community in that way. Lord, thank you for those kids. Thank you for those leaders. Lord, I want to pray for the churches and the folks that are on the Gulf Coast that have begun rebuilding. I want to pray specifically for my, my friend Tim in, in Williams Boulevard Baptist Church. And I want to pray that you would just use them to love on that community in an incredibly real and incredibly tangible way. Lord, while I pray for those things that are happening, Lord, I, I thank you that you're using this campus to reach this community, whether it be through the homeschooling groups or our preschool or the ballet classes or our student ministry, which is meeting now, or our children that are meeting now. I thank you for using this church to reach this community. Lord, I lift up those that are being impacted by COVID and having to navigate that, Lord, whether it's because they are in a hospital and dealing with it physically or just because uh, it rattles their nerves and it's, it's crippling them, Lord, I pray for healing. I pray for, for, bold, for courage. I pray for faith and hope in the midst of all of this. Lord, but I thank you for your word. I thank you for the opportunity to sit and chat and talk and get to know one another. And Lord, I ask that you would bless this, that those efforts this fall, that your church, your bride, that we would learn how to love one another in the way that you loved us, in the way that you love us, so that they will know who we are and whose we are because of our love for one another. And as we love one another, we will see this community introduced to you in life-changing, eternal ways. Because we ask it and we pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. And everybody said, amen. On November the 7th, um, we're going to have a marriage enrichment night. My very close friend, Tom and Rhonda Hufty, will be here. Uh, we've been trying to get them here for like the entire two years that I've been here, but uh, they're going to come in November, and he's going to preach that morning as a part of our Wired That Way series. And then we're going to do a marriage enrichment night. Um, they are a ton of fun. I, I, we debated on calling it a conference or a workshop. And it's just marriage enrichment because it's going to be a lot of fun. So I want you to come. I want you to bring your spouse. You don't have to get a spouse just to come, Karen. Um, you know, um, but I do want you, and then I want you to invite some folks. Some, some folks you know may not come on a Sunday morning, but they may come to a marriage enrichment night and have a good time with us, and we go from there. That is Song of Solomon. I did that the best I could. Now we're done, and tag Isaiah is all yours. So God bless you. Have a wonderful evening. We'll see you Sunday.